Hey, this is Chuck Dixon, and you're listening to Signal of Doom. <laughs> well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. Hello and welcome to Signal of Doom. It's my pleasure to introduce Jerry Conway, legendary writer of comics, TV and film, and crucially, the co-creator of Punisher, which in my book, Jerry, means you should be getting a lifetime supply of free meals. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good. Uh, thanks, Dave. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased. And, and we're so happy to have you on, uh, Jerry, because it's hands across the ocean again. Are you in, uh, are you in California? I am. I'm uh, in Southern California, north of Los Angeles, uh, in a relatively small community that's uh, uh, got a nice, easy pace of life. It's uh, where Jack Kirby used to live. Really? Actually. Wow, that's that's, yeah. that's that's cool. Have you surely yeah. you've done a drive by of the house and just you know just seen where or what it's I, like? I, it's actually uh, it's on my path. Uh, not every morning, but, you know, fairly sure. close. You know, he's about a mile away from where I live now, so, or he was. Yeah, uh, rest, rest in peace, Jack Kirby. What what a what a major, major figure when it comes to comic books, you know, like one of the guys, oh, sure. you know, jeez. Um, now, I, so I always ask, uh, how, how are your post, post-apocalypse doing? Uh, you're, you're all good over there, uh, wars, COVID, everything else, you've, you know... <laughs> Yeah, theoretically, uh, you know, (laughs) it feels like the last two years have been a bit of a blur. Uh, My my wife and I are slowly uh, unbending ourselves, uh, although... It feels like it's a temporary. Sure. <laughs> temporary well, well, Putin seemed to raise the stakes, didn't he? He's like, you know what? You've oh, got, yeah. you know, he's just like, oh, well, let's take it to the next level. When he said the other day, he goes, I haven't ruled out nukes. I was like, maybe you should. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I think the, 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 there's an upside to everything, right? Mm. You know, and uh, even the worst experiences in our lives uh, can, can be, uh, educational, you know, or transformative. Mm. Uh, I, I look back on terrible experiences in my own personal life, and, and many of them turned out to be for the better. Mm. Um, both COVID and uh, uh, the Ukraine war ha- have been clarifying experiences uh, for the world in general. Mm. And I think that's that's important. You know, it's important to every once in a while get shaken out of our somnolence and, um, you know, mm. recognize how things actually are <laughs> no it's true man it's true like it puts it on the front page and people like myself who are sitting here in sydney australia who are a long way removed suddenly go oh yeah this is you know there's real things at stake and uh yeah no yeah. for sure now um i want to i want to switch into the show now first question before we even get started we always ask our guests betty or veronica jerry so which <laughs> one for you I, uh, you know what? It's been so long since I since I read the books. I'm not sure who is who, but uh, Betty's the blonde. More, Betty's the blonde. Yeah, I'm probably more more of a Veronica, uh, just because she Good. had attitude. Yeah, it seemed to be. Yes. Well, you, you know, know what? I, I think yes. In yeah. in recent, early on in my our polling, Betty was way out in front, but Veronica has pulled narrowed that gap now to a point she might even be in front. It's been there's been a late surge of Veronica voting actually. 
Now, we recently... You know, I, sorry, I go ahead. Riverdale for a few years. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I always thought that Veronica, as written in that show, was mm. the more interesting character. Mm. Um, but I, I've always had a, a thing for the slightly bad girl, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think it was uh, Chuck Dixon who said that uh, Betty's the girl you'd like to marry. Veronica's a girl you'd like to date. I think he said that to us on the show. <laughs> and that made me laugh. <laughs> I, I, I would prefer to marry a Veronica. Would to you? Be honest there you with go. You. I mean, like yeah, you like a I bit of edge. You like a little bit of edge. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, Betty, Betty's sweet, sweet, but mm. you know that that would probably get boring for a while. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree with you. Actually, I think I'd be voting Veronica. Uh, now we recently had uh, Tom DeFalco on the show, who co-created Peter Porker Spider Ham. Now, one of our listeners, Michael <laughs> Kelly, yeah, I, I love Peter Porker. Now. One of our listeners, Michael Kellishin, pointed out you're one of the creators of the character Captain Carrot. Who would take it out in a fight between the two, Jerry? Uh, well, Captain Carrot has, uh, you know, like super superpowers. Uh, right. Plus, he's a rabbit. Yes. Uh, so he might have know, the edge. It's, uh, it's, he might have an edge, but uh, I, I think Peter Porker would probably be funnier. I love. I, <laughs> I must admit, I love Peter Porker. But I know, actually, Captain Carrot, I know Grant Morrison did some wild things with Captain Carrot in Final Crisis and Multiversity. That's my exposure <laughs> to Carrot. Did you read that and go, wow, Captain Carrot? You know, I haven't read... Uh, I, I find Grant's work... Uh, th there's, like, two versions of Grant for mm. me. Uh, there's the accessible Grant um, where where he's writing, you know, fairly, fairly clear-headed... Uh, not not completely straight, but you know, kind mm. of kind of uh, linear stories. And then then there's this other weird crap. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I find yeah. most of most of his crisis work uh, falls into that other semi comprehensible. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, he was one of the guys that was writing comics when I got into it. Like, and he got me into it. But he, as you say, has a very narrative based style. But then. In some of his, uh, especially some of his creator own stuff um, or Vertigo stuff, sometimes you're like, "Wow, I." Uh, yeah, I... <laughs> yeah, I well, the great. I mean, the thing about Grant is that I, I, I admire his. I admire his his uh, intellectual investment in mm. in uh, comics mythology. Uh, yeah, because he really gets deep into this stuff, which is why you know his uh, things like multiplicity are so interesting but also so hard for me yeah. to read because i'm i'm much more of a linear thinker sure you know um, i get it man i get it yeah. i i thoroughly admire uh you know his his depth of field <laughs> oh yeah no he's yeah he's he's he he's nuts in a good way if you know what i mean oh, now yeah. Yeah. jerry and, let sorry go ahead uh, well, just and when he, I mean, when he does write a, a linear story like All Star Superman or mm. uh, or the like, you know, uh, there uh, or his Batman, his Batman mm. uh, work. I mean, that stuff is just uh, uh, beyond reproach. I mean, it's just perfect, you know, oh, perfect yeah. understanding of the characters. He did that really great Batman, where um, he kind of did Batman through the decades. And in yes. one of them, the, I love the one where it's the 60s and Joker has been using so much of the chemicals on them. They're all a bit enhanced and all a bit sort of cartoony. Yeah. I, I yeah. Well, that's, that's, see, that's, that, that was what I, what I love about Grant is that he tries to take the, and this is, this is brilliant stuff. You know, he takes the most outrageous and outlandish uh, iterations of, uh, of the DC mythology mm. 
and tries to incorporate it into actual current DC mythology yeah, by it's... rationalizing it. And it's wonderful in that regard. So, you know, it's, it, that's the fanboy in him, uh, I'm sure. And it appeals to the fanboy in me. Yeah, for sure. Now, Jerry, uh, let's dive right into Spider-Man. Um, now, sure. uh, I'm a big, big Spider-Man fan. Now, you literally, I, I didn't realise this, you, you followed on straight after Stan's run on Spider-Man and you were quite young. Was there a lot of pressure on you or were you too young and fresh to the industry to feel the pressure? <laughs> well, I, I've said this before that, that you know, this, my, my, my secret superpower mm. um, when I was uh, the first five or ten years that I was writing comics was uh, my uh, ignorant arrogance. <laughs> you know, I was, I was both too, too uh, naive slash ignorant mm. to recognize the limitations of my ability at the time and too arrogant to, <laughs> uh, uh, I guess... Uh, Kind of realize take pause yeah, yeah. well yeah, hey but i mean that's that's the it. arrogance of youth and it can be a helpful yeah. thing now so oh, when you absolutely. came on yeah when you came on it's it's i imagine the early 70s um was there a pressure for you to ride in a certain style i guess stan had a very distinctive style or were you allowed to drive the titles in your own direction well i think it i think it was a bit of both mm. uh obviously in in a strange sort of way by the early 70s the writer who influenced was uh, who Marvel writer who influenced me the, the most strongly was Roy. Uh, oh yeah. You know, I would say Stan always was an influence because he was the Uber. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the, yeah. the the uh, uh, the the originator of the Marvel uh, verbal style, mm. but Roy had taken it and transformed it, you know, to something a little more uh, self conscious and literary. Mm. Right. Uh, his, and that's Roy Thomas work, for the kids at home, just yeah, for, for those listening at home, Roy Thomas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, that's that. So you're kind of like, I get you. So he was a big influence on you. Yeah, he, he really was. And, and specifically his work on X-Men at that time, uh, he was doing uh, X-Men with Neil Adams. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would read Roy's scripts, you know, his, his dialogue. Yeah. Uh, for the, uh, for the, for the, for the issues that he was writing and tried to understand how he was parsing uh, scenes and how he was uh, addressing the art and, mm. you know, what, what, what he was doing. So that, that was really, I think, the, the, the way that I, I approached the material myself. But I also had my own stylistic approach to things like captions, mm -hmm. uh, to narrative. Uh, and uh, while, I, while in a, a dialogue sense, I was influenced by the Stan slash Roy mm. uh, uh, style uh, it, narratively, you know, my, my voice was more, uh, I'd say more moody and uh, yep. possibly, uh, you know, more self-conscious yeah. than, than, than uh, anyone else at Marvel at that time. That's cool. And you had a marvelous artist in Ross Andrew, who I find his work oh, quite sure. beautiful. I mean, was he a help for you, like to be writing to that kind of art? Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I'm. I I've, all, I've said that there's a handful of artists that I've worked with, you know, I, I consider really raised my game mm. um, and were, generally speaking, not the 
the super popular artists of the time. Mm. But when people look back at their work now, they, they can see the values that they brought. Yeah. Uh, Ross was a tremendous storyteller. Mm. Um, and he could, he could take a, a, a scene, you know, he was a collaborator, uh, mm. really, in the storytelling. He could take a scene and, and tell that story in that scene in a way that really um, uh, brought out the best in me as a, as a dialogue uh, collaborator. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they were really, you know, at, at the time I would have would have called myself the writer of those books. Sure. Um, but these days I, I really, reflecting on it, mm. think that we were co- uh, co-writers. Yeah, and and surely in 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 comics, it, the best, uh, you know, when you're working in total sync with an artist like that. I mean, in a sense, I can see you are both collaborating because he's he's having to, you're putting stuff down the script, but he's having to interpret and draw it out. It really is a kind of yin and yang kind of relationship. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you uh, about the original Clone Saga. I read it again uh, prior to this interview. Obviously, you have... The, I love it, by the way, the original Clone Saga. You have Thank that you. scene at the end of Amazing 149 where Peter um, seems actually unsure whether he's the real Peter or the clone, but he shrugs it off and spends mm-hmm. time with Mary Jane. Now, did you intend to come back and follow that thread up, or was that the actual end of the arc as far as you're concerned? Because I noticed... Uh, Archie Goodwin wrote 150. Um, was there a behind-the-scenes story why you kind of left the title, didn't write the next issue? Did you have more to tell with that story? My, I was actually on my way out uh, right. uh, at Marvel at that oh, time. of Marvel um, itself? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I was either anticipating or had already made the, the conscious move to, to go to uh, D.C. Uh, um, right. And uh, I think I, I, I wanted to tie it in a neat bow <laughs> no you did I, that makes sense because i read it and i got to the end of 149 and i was like wow that what an ending and then i noticed the next issue they deal with it but i noticed it wasn't written by you and you were actually at the door but you thought this is a good way to kind of end it and how long was your run on spider-man like in years roughly originally back uh, well, then let's see i think it was uh, i started with 111 and i ended okay. with 149 so that's about three and a quarter years right okay yeah. and then you went to this yeah it wasn't that long actually <laughs> it's good though it's gee it's strong um what a strong run now this is an oldie but a goodie jerry so you'll have to indulge us because i'm sure you've probably answered this four million times but um my co-host richard asked um and he can't be with us today because he's working a double shift and so he says hello now, can you take us through the scenes, behind the scenes, on Gwen Stacy's death? Was that your idea or editorial? Um, and what was the underlying reason for the death? Uh, did you kind of <laughs> sure. want to jar and scar the teenage readers? That's how I view it. Did you just sort of want to shock <laughs> them a little bit, you know? Well, actually, the, the uh, initial impetus for killing off a supporting character was from John Romita. Okay. Yep. <clears throat> who Senior. Yep, senior of, back then. Yeah, senior, yeah. Mm. Uh, he was a fan of Milton Kniff, uh, the artist who did Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon uh, newspaper strips. Right. And what uh, what he said about Kniff was that Kniff, when uh, after you know a, a year or two of, of uh, telling fairly uh, dramatic but it, but interesting but conventional stories, would would occasionally shake things up by you know a major character in the series uh being taken off the page gotcha. you know, either yep. uh, written out or 
you know, dead or, or some other way. Yep. Because that would remind the, the readers that there's a reason to keep reading. <laughs> yeah, like there's, a, there's a consequence of, thi- of things, yeah. you know, yeah, that sure. Things, things are never going to remain static, you know, that mm. there's going to be big change. Mm. So <laughs> John's initial thought was that we uh, should kill Aunt May. That, uh, oh wow, jeez, he went right for the heart, didn't he? He went right for the heart, aren't May? My God. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you if you look at the way that John, uh, I, I mean, you can tell artists' preferences for for, for sure. different characters sure. by how they uh, how they how they interpret them. Mm. And John clearly liked the the girls in the the strip, and that's what he was um, famous for, wasn't it? He's he yeah, came from yeah, he did he a, a fantastic. Good, he was what was known as a good girl artist, you know. Sure. And yep. He, he he also kind of liked the the, the young male characters. Yep. Um, and he, he had a kind of disdain. I'm not saying you know real disdain, but you sure. know just a yeah. She's you know kind of comedic. Almost, well, she's almost you know, the that, old bitty back then, isn't she? she yeah. She, she looks you know, like she's she's going to die at any second, almost. You know, like. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and the way that I mean the way that Ditko interpreted Aunt May mm. lent you led you to see her. As frail and and uh, yet this kind of sweet, you know, mm. and 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 with it, but just a little, a, a little out of her league, you know. Sure. But John, but John portrayed her as kind of dotty, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, oh my goodness, oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so he thought comedic. he thought she could go. But did you push? Yes. Did, were you the one who said Gwen? I I did not think she she, she could go. Mm. I th- I felt that. May, I mean, first of all, she's like the original yeah. uh, character for, for uh, 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 conscience character for Peter. Yeah. Um, you know, every every superhero in my book, uh, I think, needs a conscious ca- conscience character. Mm. Uh, you know, the the the, um, the emotional equivalent of a Jiminy Cricket. You know, mm. that uh, ties that that hero to their original purpose. Even Punisher um, has microchip. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in, in Punisher's case, uh, you know, he he, he is a, a, a he wasn't a hero, so you know he he probably needs uh, a therapist. Was, <laughs> yeah, and, and his trauma is is carried sure. consistently, you know, through his behavior and his actions. But mm. Peter needed, I mean, in my view, you know, needed this constant reminder of the great responsibility. Yes. Issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And May was that res- reminder. So I, I didn't. I think I, I didn't think she was dispensable. No. Um, but when I looked at his supporting cast, the, the, the characters that I felt would have emotional impact were uh, Mary Jane and uh, Gwen Stacy. Gotcha. And the reason for that was that they were they were emblematic of uh, Peter's effort to uh, have a life, you know, mm. have a personal life. Uh, that was separate from uh, his existence as Spider-Man, uh, and that were was about his emotional uh, yeah. uh, connection to, to life. Yeah, they're his uh, girlfriend's and, kind of thing, literally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, I, th- this is all stuff that you know I've, I've recognized in my thoughts years later. You know, sure. at the time, it boiled down to I like Mary Jane. I don't like. Gwen Stacy as yeah. uh, characters to write for. Yeah, so you and made a call. You, you sort of said, I'll yeah, go with Mary Jane and I'll get rid about, of Gwen. How about we kill off Gwen Stacy? 
Because I always felt in my heart of hearts that Mary Jane was a more interesting character for Peter to be involved with. Sure. And she had clearly been set up to be that character. Oh. <laughs> that was the thing. I never understood the, the, the transition to Gwen. Uh, it just didn't make sense to me, oh. you know, for, thematically, emotionally, uh, you know, even as a, even as a, as a uh, you know, as, as, as a life mate companion. Sure. Gwen just seemed bland and uninteresting. Yeah. So it was an easy call, you know, in my view. And I, that's, that's what I pitched. So it worked. When we took I mean, this you know. to, yeah, we took it to Stan and, uh, you know, Roy, for, I mean, obviously Roy was as editor uh, at the time, you know, was oh. the person who uh, signed off on it. And then we all, you know, cause Stan was publisher and, you know, the, the, the architect, oh. uh, we took it to Stan and said, you know, what do you think? He said, sure. Okay. Um, so he, he, did. he didn't have any issues with it at all. He was like, yeah, cool. No, Sounds no, good. No. Stan, to give Stan credit, you know, oh. his attitude was, I've given this book over to you guys. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I trust you to, to do what you think is best for it. And you kind of know what our, our parameters and how we do things. He's like, as long as you don't kill Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, basically. Yes. You know, yeah. I mean, he, he, he trusted us to tell the story. He tr certainly trusted John. That's good. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, so, well, God, God bless him for that. Out, you know? As it turned out, John left the book as penciler uh, oh. with the previous issue. So it became uh, uh, Gil Kane, you know, yes. uh, as the artist on that story. And, and Gil had less invested, I think, in uh, the story uh, uh, sure. that, that, that uh, and John did, you know, and, and he, he's actually the one I credit with. Uh, you know the 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 moment that that everybody now you know oh the snapping uh, moment or whatever it is yeah is it, yeah like, yeah, the yeah. Snap. because in his portrayal of that fall it's very clear mm. you know that that she's you know snapping uh, yeah. and i added the snap effect the sound effect not even thinking about it you know yeah. one way or the other but i think that was the traumatizing element sure um because sure. It's not just that peter fails to rescue Mary Jane, mm. it's that in failing, he also contributes to the death. I know, and haven't uh, the uh, comic book community almost been like the Kennedy assassination over that? Those panels, it feels like over the decades. My God, how many times have you had to explain that story in cons? I mean, you must be getting up there to the millions. Um, I do want to say, <laughs> I mean, I, I love the story. I, I want to say, I know it has its detractors, but the Amazing Spider-Man 2 movie did that scene very well, and it brought a tear to my eye. I was wondering, oh, yeah. yeah, as a creator who's had, you know, I'm sure chunks of your work adapted to cartoons and live action over the years, uh, do you seek it out or do you avoid that? And, like, do you say to your wife, hey, they're playing my song when you see something like Amazing Spider-Man <laughs> 2 or Tombstone turn up in the cartoons? How's the feeling well, for you when you see it? I, I actually, I, I, I'm very grateful, you know, mm. that, that I've been around long enough, uh, you know, for that, that to happen. Mm. Um, and I, when, when we, we were invited to the premiere mm. of uh, Spider-Man 2, uh, I, I, my daughter uh, made me make, it, make a stink about being invited, and, and sure. uh, Mark Webb very kindly made it happen, which I thought was great. Well, thank God you were invited. Uh, like, I mean, yeah. my God, well, like, you know, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> very rarely <laughs> yeah. do you get invited to yeah, these things. I bet. I mean, Marvel is very good about inviting uh, people, but this was a Sony film, so yes. it was less less uh, in his hands sure. or, or, or less likely. Anyway, I was there, and to be in the theater, which was filled with people who, for the most part, did not know what was coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and to see that that death and to hear that snap and mm. to experience that that gasp yeah. that filled the theater at that moment, I felt chills. Yeah, you know, it it, it chilled me, and I finally got what the readers had felt yeah. at that moment, reading it for the first time in 72 uh, or 73, whatever. It, yeah, they did a great job with it. Um, now, yeah. I, I do want to ask you something, and we don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but something Signal of Doom cares about a lot and tackles is is what I honestly see as a decades-long mistreatment of creatives um, by both Marvel and DC and you know the corporates that own them. Now, the current, I just want to get your opinion, the current fashionable thing to do is these mass thank yous at the end of the movie or show. <laughs> um, now, what I want to know, without being your accountant, is are they backing up these thank yous with sizable checks? Like, when you're, like, without being your accountant, when the Punisher show debuted on Netflix, does it move the needle for you? And what is a thank you to you? Like, because to me, it honestly feels a little empty, but I'm, I'm from the outside, Jerry, so I'm asking you. Well, um, in the case of, uh, it, it's it's an interest. I mean, th- th- this is all really complicated, right? Sure. Uh, for a long time, I mean, we're talking for decades. Yeah. There was there was no acknowledgement. Nothing. Uh, of creators. Right. So which is wrong. When, yeah. So when when Marvel uh, the Marvel films started thanking people in sure. the end credits, that was a huge. Uh, a huge had a huge impact. Right. Uh, financially, DC has always had since the seventies, since mm. the mid seventies, mm. a um, contractual obligation to pay for uh, uh, to pay creators for uh, material characters that they co-created or you know uh, created. Um, when those characters are used outside of uh, comics. Gotcha. So from, from, with DC, there's been a financial obligation. With DC does not follow that up with a on-screen acknowledgement unless, it's, unless it is contractually obligated. Right. So uh, DC will pay you, but they won't thank you. I'd rather get paid. <laughs> I, like, I, I'd rather get paid, honestly. You know? Well, you know, I I, I think both are uh, are, yeah. are useful. Okay. Now, now in ca- the case of the Punisher, mm. uh, when, when we saw the Netflix uh, series, mm. uh, they gave a front credit for co-creation to me, uh, Ross Andrew, and John Romita, which uh, I was delighted by. Yeah, you know, I thought that yeah. was. I, I mean, it's the minimum due. You know. Yeah, hundred percent, uh, man. And there My were. Marvel does also, you know, find ways to compensate you financially. Good. Um, you know, which is also nice. Yeah. Uh, but Marvel never, in my view, mm. the, the, the difference between Marvel and DC in this regard mm. is that Marvel never had the obligation mm-hmm. contractually to do anything. Right. So in, in, their, in, <laughs> right. Yeah, in their contract, they, they could do nothing and they'd be okay. 
yeah. Yeah. You know, so so from a complete legal point of view, there was no contractual uh, obligation. And anything Marvel has done for me over the last uh, 40 or 50 years, I take with honest gratitude because sure. you know, they didn't didn't need to do it. DC, on the other hand, has a contractual obligation, yet acts as though that's doing me a favor. <laughs> uh, no, I hear you, man. Have you ever, <laughs> like, like, yeah, it's not a favor, like, but I want to ask you this question. You, yeah, it You're is the minimum. The min- yeah, you're literally doing the minimum that you are contractually obligated to do, and I owe you nothing yeah. in terms of uh, a, a thanks for that. And they're ripping your um, stories out and, and making billions of them. But just to wrap this up, because I know it's a complicated issue, but you've been around a long time. So how did you ever at any point, like I imagine, you know, guys who've been around a long time, ever any point, was there ever any talk of like we should unionize or something like these deals well, are, yeah. are bad, you know? Well, I mean, in the early 70s, uh, Neil Adams tried to form a, uh, a comics creators guild. Mm. Um, and there was interest in that, you know, generally speaking. But nobody, mm. nobody was willing to take the step of, of making it an actual union. And I, I count myself in that, mm. um, where we would withhold services. Uh, gotcha. And it's yeah. pointless, you know, yeah. to have a guild or a society uh, that has no uh, negotiating leverage. Yeah, so yeah, it, no. So it, I, I, just, I do think that's held the you guys back a bit, though, because they have. I know they pay better now, but they're still screwing you a bit. You know what I mean? Like, oh, they're yeah. screwing us enormously. Yeah. I mean, the truth yeah. is, from a from a. Uh, uh, an inflationary point of view, comic book writers and artists are not being paid any more now than they were in the 70s. Yeah, um, that's, and that's nuts. That's we, nuts, man. We, we do right, have man. the opportunity to make more because of royalties. Yes. But the flat rate you know, that you're paid uh, initially mm. is pretty, pretty uh, uh, flat. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, yeah, I wanted to get your view on it because it is something we care about on Signal. So I wanted to get your view of someone like yourself who's who's been there and done it for a long time. And you've, I'm sure you've seen the changes. Now, moving back into comics, um, Spectacular Spider-Man, you had a great late 80s, early 90s run, which is rated very highly. Was it a pleasure to have another long run on Spider-Man for a oh. second time? Because I'm imagining the Jerry Conway, the writer, in the mid to late 80s was quite different from that early 70s writer and the industry absolutely. would have changed too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, uh, for, for one thing, I was uh, older, you mm. know, and much more experienced mm. uh, and had, I think, a, a better grasp of, of uh, my craft mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, plus, there was a, an additional challenge that, that raised this, the stakes for me creatively, which was I was writing two of the three titles and um, took it as, as uh, a, a challenge to try to interweave the stories uh-huh. between the two, the two books. So you were writing, um, writing Spectacular Spider-Man, and what was the other title you were writing? Web, Web of Spider-Man. Oh, right, you were writing Web as well. Okay, love yeah. it. Yeah, okay. And in effect, because the main title uh, had the, the main supporting cast, I sure. took on uh, basically creating stories for the secondary supporting cast, mm-hmm. which gave me the freedom, you know, to, to really explore people who 
uh, had been on the outskirts of Peter's life. Um, and that was that was a lot of fun. I mean, that's where we we got Tombstone and the whole Robbie Robertson oh, storyline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I got to invent some new villains, um, you know, just just do stories that because they w- were not considered consequential, that gave me the freedom to do whatever the heck I oh, wanted to man, do. Oh, man, we're reading it this week. <laughs> we're, we're doing your Tombstone trade that they put out this week on the Signal of Doom, and it's a pleasure. Um, now, I mean, oh, yeah, you co-created Tombstone. Now, I never realised how tied into his origin Robbie Robertson was, and the Tombstone oh, yeah. almost does a Bane backbreak on him. Uh, I was like, Jesus, yeah, Tombstone. Yeah. Like, <laughs> There's a lot of... Yeah, I mean, that was a real chance for me to, to develop Robbie as a character. Yeah. You know, because he had not really had much... Uh, I mean, he'd, he'd always been kind of a, a minor Perry White, you know. Um, yeah, good character, and, but yeah, no, didn't yeah, go good. do a lot with you him, know, you but, know. But, but not not the center of anything. No. And this was his chance to, to really shine. And that was a great pleasure because, you know, you... You you to, to actually take a a, a peripheral character and mm. make him the center gives you the opportunity to explore a whole new social and and uh, emotional and uh, 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 angle to 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 the stories. It's sort of like having a uh, doing an anthology, you know, series. Yeah. Like there used to be these back in the '60s in TV. There used to be these anthology shows that had a main character who wandered into other characters' lives for one episode, you okay. know, like The Fugitive. Oh, I love uh, The Fugitive, or, man. The uh, Fugitive is one of my yeah, favorite I mean, shows of all time, you know? It's it's the classic of that genre. But yeah. you you also had Route 66. You had um, uh, Run for Your Life. You had uh, all these stories where these, these main characters who had a through line mm. – uh, who would wander in for one episode yes. into some some secondary character's cr- crisis and participate in it in a very minor sort of way, but it was a, a, you, you, you sort of drew the focus onto that that the rover the rover character, character. I call those kind of guys like they come yeah. in and they you know fugitives a great in. example that that I know Absolutely. of and yeah now yeah I mean there yeah. were a lot of them but but. The, the, that had fallen aside, and mm. you'd 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 by the seventies you were basically just doing A stories, you know. Yeah. In the film and TV business, you had what was known as A stories and B stories, and the B story was uh, usually a minor story that you would cut away to um, during the course of the the episode. Uh, I love the B stories. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, <laughs> and so you were and, playing kind of with the fringe and. I think yeah. really drawing out some power. Now, I enjoyed, um, I was reading, you brought Captain America in as an antagonist to capture Spider-Man. So, uh, Jerry, you were playing with the issues of illegals and putting them in detention a long time before that was a mainstream hot topic in the media like it is today, you know, with ICE and everything. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that uh, I, I've always been socially aware. I mean, yeah, I grew up yeah. in a very socially aware uh, era. Um, you know, I was a child of the sixties, you know, sure. the civil rights era, the, uh, uh, women's liberation movement, uh, anti-war. Um, mm. so my consciousness was <laughs> raised. You know, I, I get it. Yeah. And uh, there's a line in there that Captain America says the flag I wear is supposed to inspire, not terrify. And I was like, man, that's a yeah. good line. You know, like, 
Um, there's a few versions of that line, but that's that's right up there. Now, um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've covered Tombstone. He's fantastic, that character. Now, I'm asking, but when you came back to do Spider-Man in the 80s, by that period, I'm pretty correct, I think I'm correct in saying he was married. Did you feel the marriage with MJ made the character more or less interesting in the early 70s incarnation you wrote? And if you were going to write oh. a Spider-Man story today, what age do you instinctively go for for Spidey? Well, I think Spidey should be and forever should be an adolescent. Really? Uh, okay, because, adolescent. Yeah. Wow. Okay. The, the reason being that he's about... Just think of his motto, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. That is the definition of the adolescent uh, uh, mindset, sure. you know, which is you are beginning to become an adult. Mm. And with that uh, growth into adulthood mm. comes the power of adulthood and the responsibilities of adulthood. Sure. And how you deal with those is the essential reason for Spider-Man's existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's key to his whole his, thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like Batman is a wounded child uh, uh, looking for justice for the death of his parents. Sure. Uh, and Superman is uh, the ultimate immigrant trying to assimilate into human society. Yeah, okay. That's a good uh, one. Peter Parker is the uh, the avatar of adolescent uh, uh, movement into adult society. And so, so you wouldn't have married him if that is that what you're saying? At the I end? wouldn't have had him graduate college. Yeah, I was going to say I was I was going to say adolescent. That's that's right back. Okay, so very early yeah. in the piece. That's yeah, that's I don't, cool. I don't see any there's a total look there's a problem with, with aging or, or developing superhero characters in mm. general mm. because they are not actual people. <laughs> you know, I, not. I, I, I'm nodding because it's some, it sounds silly, but it's easy to forget sometimes for the fans. You yeah. know, um, yeah. They are, they are, symbol, they are symbolic uh, mythological beings. Yeah. And they, they serve, a, they serve a, a mythological purpose within the context of their creation. They do not, they, they cannot age, they cannot develop, unless that's a separate story. Gotcha. You know, you, that's why The Dark Knight Returns mm. was a special story. Yeah, because it, it was in the existed, future, yeah. Yeah, it existed in a mythological, you know, it's, 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 a, it's another element of the mythology. You know, it's, yeah. it's, um, uh, it's, it's like, uh, there was this great movie and I, I, I uh, very few people have probably seen it, mm. but I think it had a big influence on, on comic book, uh, writers in a weird sort of way. It's called, uh, Robin and Marion. Okay. I've and heard of that. That's Audrey Hepburn and, um, Sean Connery. Audrey isn't Hepburn it? and yeah. Sean Connery. Yep. And the idea was what happened to them at, when they got older? Yes. You know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. Robin and Marion are, you know, when you say Robin and Marion, you're thinking, oh, you know, dashing Errol, young Robin and Errol uh, Maid Marion, yeah. you know. But no, this this was about what happens when, you know, the, the hero, when the myth, you know, is over. Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, and that makes for a very special story. But it would be pointless to tell that story except as a special story. Yeah, you don't want that uh, in every issue kind of thing. It would get no, stale. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it, yeah. It's, it, it's also not what 
Robin Hood is about. <laughs> no, that's true. You know, you're right. It's, like, it's kind of the aftermath right? story. It's the aftermath yeah, story. It's, it's a unique story. Yeah. So marrying Peter, having him graduate college, having him turn into somebody in his 30s, I mean, which is what he is now. Yes, he's about 31. Complete, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's completely pointless. I know. I mean, the the idea of Peter Parker, you know, the snarky, smart-mouthed Spider-Man exists because he's a teenager. Yeah, a guy behaving like this in his thirties, yes, is fundamentally a weirdo. Yes, it, and you know what? <laughs> You're right because it's it's not like he's changed that much personality-wise. And you're sort of like, how old is this guy? Like, right? He's an arrested adolescent yeah. in his emotional state. Yeah, but he's thirty, and he's behaving like a child. Yeah, and he's which yeah, is yeah really fucking weird. It is and, weird, you know. Yeah. And it also makes, from a completely logical point of view, it makes no sense. Because if you think about uh, all of these characters having uh, come into into the world at the same time, Peter Parker coming into the world as, uh, uh, you know, a teenager at the same time that uh, the Fantastic Four, you know, went flying into space Johnny storm and, and all, all that yeah. character yeah right that means that that peter parker at being 31 that means that it's 16 years later everyone is supposed to be then you know like yes yeah everybody should be 16 years later and that's just not how it is no no you know? i mean i don't you know everybody is randomly placed at a different age in yeah. the marvel universe than what they would actually be if Peter Parker is 31 years old. It drives you insane to try to think about yeah. it. As, you know, so yeah. if, if, if we're not trying to be logical about it, which is the only possible reason why you would say Peter Parker is 31, yeah. uh, then we should just embrace the fact that these are characters frozen in time at a particular moment mm. where they make the most sense. <laughs> no, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. Now, I've got a, a question, final question on Spider-Man. Uh, during the 90s, um, the Sprawling Clone Saga, uh, which I actually quite like, did they at any point call you or ask you to do some issues? Because it seems to me that somewhere in the maze of that 90s story, somebody could have sent a flare-up for Jerry Conway because you did the original. Did that ever happen? I was... No, but but to be fair, I was also way out of the comic book business at that point. Right, so you weren't a, you weren't you you were doing yeah. your Hollywood thing and and TV and all that kind of stuff at that time. Yeah, and and I I didn't ha- really have any contact with anyone. No, no, no I, um, I I just wondered because you did do the original and it was quite a big story, and then they obviously dug it up. So um, mm-hmm. now I want to segue into one of my favorites, which is Batman. Um, we recently did the first Tales of Batman hardcover, the Jerry Conway hardcover, and I love this period. Uh, where Bruce Wayne is in the penthouse, Jerry. You had the classic <laughs> Batmobile um, straight out of the Adam West 66 show. Did you leave it up to the artist to select that Batmobile, or was there like a style guide as to what Batmobile Bruce was tooling around in? Because I love that that Batmobile that you've got going there. I, I think there was a style guide. Yeah. Uh, DC in the 80s had uh, Jose Garcia Lopez yeah. do style guides for all of the characters. So uh, it may well be. That's why in the '80s, all the you know all the different books uh, were very consistent at DC yeah. about how characters looked because there were style guides. And that is an, uh, that's I, an asset as a as a reader 
um, the Batman oh. of that era. Like, um, when I look at your DC work, okay, you did enough Batman to fill three hardcovers. Um, I love that late 70s Batman. It's dark and it's moody, but it's not the bleakness which came in the aftermath right. of Dark Knight Returns. Now, I noticed in your issues, Batman wasn't even afraid to appear in daylight and given an occasional press conference, <laughs> Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there, there, this is an in-between era, right? Mm. I mean, this was heavily influenced by uh, uh, Denny O'Neill and, mm-hmm. and Neil Adams' mm-hmm. take on uh, Batman, mm. you know, where they, they were the first ones who uh, uh, referred to him, at, you know, or really played into the, uh, the, the, the dark, darker aspects of the character. Sure. Yep. Um, so that was, that was a major influence, but an, an additional influence on me as a, as a writer was the late fifties, early sixties. Okay, uh, right. Batman, uh, not not the not the Jack Schiff uh, uh, science fiction Batman, but oh. the the fifties uh, uh, Batman Annual Batman. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> which was you know reprints of the late forties, early fifties Dick. Sh- uh, 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 oh God, I'm, I'm going to blank on his name. Uh, I want to say Dick Shaft, but okay. Um, oh, Dick Sprang, Dick Sprang. Oh, yes, that's a Batman. very famous name, isn't it? Yeah, sure. And uh, then also the early uh, New Look Batman that uh, was uh, Carmen Infantino, mm-hmm. uh, Gardner Fox, John Broom Batman oh, yeah. under Julie Schwartz, which was you know a quote more serious version of Batman, where detection and uh, Working out uh, what the, the, the villains were up to was part of a uh, you know big part of the story. Yeah. So my influences on those stories were you know the the, the Dick Sprang, larger than life. Yes. Uh, villains, you know, because your Batman gets right writer. in the face. Your Batman gets right in the face of the criminals oh, yeah. and stuff. Like he's very he's very physical. Like he'll confront them yes. by the shirt, drag up. Now um, I always say. Uh, we lost Bruce Wayne somewhere in the mix for a while as the 80s bled into the 90s. Um, and you definitely had, still had Bruce Wayne. When I'm reading your issues, he's still very much Bruce Wayne in the penthouse. Talking to Alfred still feels like a living, breathing character, whereas as it wore on after Frank Miller, it feels like he became just Batman all the time. Like, you know, right? <laughs> like yes. 100% of the time. Um, as a writer... Um, how did writing Batman compare to writing Superman? Did you find one of them harder than the other? Because you're doing them kind of around the same time, yeah? I Yeah, I think I found Superman a bit more difficult because okay. he's a... Uh, superhuman, kind of thing, or super he, Yeah, Kryptonian. he's superhuman. I mean, he, he's, he's a perfect... He's perfect. You yeah. know, he's like Captain America. Yes, uh, with powers. In that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in that he's, uh, he, he's not self-doubting, yeah. You know, I mean, although I probably, you know, try to put in some self-doubt, uh, he's not self-reflective uh, in in the sense of, you know, questioning his own motives. Sure. Uh, and that as a character, you know, is, is a little difficult to 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 motivate and to uh, to write. I know Denny um, uh, said Superman was very challenging for him. You know, yeah. great writer yeah. Denny O'Neill. Like, if he's saying it, he, you know, I always, I'm, I, I myself write, and I always think Batman much easier to gravitate to. And and if you got that pulpy feel, you can pump mm-hmm. out the stories. Superman takes a little bit more um, 
you've got to kind of come up with a pitch for each issue, issue yeah. kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I think I think there are writers who are really good at writing Superman who who get him. You know, like Grant Morrison. You know, sure. a, 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 when when you think of All Star Superman, uh, or uh, uh, Mark Wade, you know, who, oh, yeah. who clearly loves that character and understands him. Yeah, now, there's um, an issue you did of World's Finest, and I want to say it's two six nine. Um, Batman's buried alive, and Superman right. is trying to find him. I love that that issue. Now, I think that would be great as an animated. Favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah. that, that was a, that allowed me to, to to do a couple of my favorite things, you know, which is uh, Batman, the the escape artist, mm. uh, Superman, you know, who who is all powerful, but you know, has his weaknesses, yeah, uh, and their friendship, you know, uh, being a driving force there. Hundred uh, percent. As uh, you know, that was a fun story. I like that. I still remember that one. I, I think World's Finest. I I just love it. They've actually just brought it back now. Funny you mentioned Mark Wade because he's actually writing it. Um, it yeah, came came out last week. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's if you're going to pick someone to do World's Finest, I think Mark Wade, the current you know crop, is you know he's a hundred percent. Now, before we move off uh, Batman, which is hard for me to do. Have you got a Batman story that you're particularly proud of and would point readers to? If you if you got sort of one that you think that's where I reach peak, uh, I would say the era. I mean, I tend to think in terms of of, of artists that I worked with sure. and uh, uh, groupings of stories. You know, I think yes. I think the 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 period when I was working with Gene Colan and Don Perlin, and we were doing what amounted to a biweekly book. Cool. Uh, Specifically, I think the monster, you know, the Hugo Strange run was was pretty well well received and okay. uh, and pretty well executed. That's uh, cool. So I, I love like Hugo that. Strange. I haven't read that, but I'll, I'll definitely check that out for you, and we'll actually throw that into the show uh, soonish so that we can you know re- talk about it and explore it. And all of this is in your uh, Tales of Batman, the Jerry Conway hardcovers yeah. that came out. So yeah. that's great. Um, now Richard had a final question on Batman. Um, he said, uh, Jerry, how do you feel about the death of Jason Todd? Why do you think he was such a polarizing character at the time? And I'm asking you, which way did you vote? Because we all know Jason Todd came down to a vote. <laughs> well, I actually wasn't aware of it until after it was over, so I didn't, I didn't vote. <laughs> you woke up um, and the election was over and he was dead. You're like, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Jason Jason was a tough character because mm. he, he was a uh, initially created as a solution to a problem, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that existed, which was, uh, wanting, I, I wanted to have Robin in Batman and Robin, sure. you know, yeah. as yeah. a, as a character, the classic Batman uh, and Robin. But, yeah. But Dick Grayson was so important to teen Titans and teen Titans was huge, really a character driven book that, uh, uh, required, his full involvement. Sure. You know, in yeah, he's a linchpin of Teen Titans, isn't he? Back then. Yeah. yeah. And he's also become much too old to sure. be the yeah, he's like in his early twenties by that point, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And to be to be what Robin was to be to Batman, which was kind of a grounding uh, a, a grounding element and also a vulnerab- vulnerability. Mm. Uh, you know Robin Robin existed both as a way for younger readers to identify with Batman mm. and as a vulnerable aspect to Batman. Sure, you know, he, a more human kind was, of side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he needed to be younger. He needed to be uh, not as competent, you know, as mm. Dick Grayson. 
who was basically Batman's equal. So, sure. so I was uh, looking at that problem, and you know, the, I I don't know whether I suggested it or uh, Marv suggested it or Denny O'Neill suggested it or mm. you know Len Wein. It's lost to the beast of time. Generally, we came say. up with the idea that that you know we need to to have a new Robin. Gotcha. And so Jason. I wanted the new Robin to be as as similar to the old younger Robin as possible. That's like the old twelve year old Robin from the originals, yeah, you know, with these little yeah, hot pants. That's kind sort of, of my conservative <laughs> impulse, you know, with these yeah. characters is mm. to go back to the go back to the origins and try to try to recapitulate, you know, what made that work. So did you write um, him as the jerk or was that later? You know, how he was no, kind of was like, the, yeah, kind that of the was, brat. That was after the crisis, you know, when, when, when his, right. uh, his origin was redefined, uh, his behavior was redefined, his personality. So right. uh, I, I named him, but sure. the character that was killed off was not the character that I had, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I get it. envisioned. And he's still around as Red Hood. He's, oh, got yeah. a, he's got a yeah. second life. And, he's got a second a whole, lease of life. Has a whole new, yeah, uh, and serves a whole new function, you sure. know, which yeah. is great. Yeah, yeah, no, it's cool. Uh, it must be cool for you as a writer. Like, you're sort of like, someone's like, you created Jason Todd. You're like, I created a Jason Todd, and he's gone on and had his own, you know, adventures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think of it as planting seeds, you know, yeah. and then those seeds grow up into whatever they're going to be. You know, it's, my, my job is simply was simply to, uh, you know, move things along hmm. issue to issue and, and throw out some seeds. Yeah, why not? And, and this is the wonderful thing about comics because they come out, you know, basically every month and have done since, you know, gear God knows what, but certainly, you know, they, not a month is missed where there's not about four or five Batman titles, you know, uh, one, right. of, one of which... Far more than they <laughs> probably should be. But... Yeah, they spam that Batman button like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> now... I want to talk some Justice League. Now, I am, I'll say, Jerry, as a kid, a young kid, I'm rifling through the comics of the newsagent. It was your Justice League that I gravitated to because, Jerry, frankly, I was a big believer in getting banged for your buck as a kid and the sheer amount of characters. I was like, this has got something that I like because I only had limited funds and I needed to get as many heroes as possible into one comic. Now, Talk about um, your run. Like, issue 200 in itself is an all-timer. I read it again before the show. That's a lot of comic for a buck fifty cover price. Um, it was a big book. Uh, how much fun was it to put together? Did you consciously write for all the different artists? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was, this was a dream project for everybody, mm. I think. Uh, I can't speak for the artists, but... Mm. You know, it was certainly a dream project for me and for Len Wein, who was the the editor uh, yeah. of the book at that time. Um, it was an excuse to do to to do a, a recapitulation. You mm. know, uh, again, you know, of, of the things that you loved as a kid uh, that, that I loved as a kid, and uh, to take uh, what was a, a a traditional format. You know, from the very early. Uh, era of uh, justice league it's like their original story isn't it or one of them anyway yeah. yeah yeah it was well i mean it was a, it was a, a reboot or, or a retelling in, in a sense of uh, their origin mm. um and at the same time for in the in the format it was a a return to the old format of 
individual chapters. With, Love it. Uh, the, uh, heroes teaming up. Love it, Jerry. Uh, Team up. ups and yeah. go and solve the problem. Exactly. The old Gardner Fox like yeah, technique. Exactly. Love it. <laughs> it was it was uh, it was very retro, and uh, you know it was an opportunity because of the page count mm. to to really go for it and to work with the uh, artists who were who were uh, firmly associated with the different characters you had a very um, early brian boland piece for us comics oh yeah. Yeah. yeah and and i'd forgotten well, I mean, that i was like wow brian boland back then yeah okay yeah yeah i mean he was he was pr- probably the the only uh, artist of that group that that had not had a previous association with the characters yeah because it's did, all like iconic so... artists wall to wall you've got just yeah. icons like everyone yeah, so we were we were really lucky that they were a available, b yeah. willing, yeah. Uh, and that we had the the uh, the the option to do it. And then all that wonderful art uh, by uh, George Perez, yes. making it you know making it fit. Oh you yeah, know, so George it, Perez it did just... such a great job. I mean, I I've been all singing his praises, but I know he doesn't need me to sing them. But God, my God, he did a good job. I was reading a story last night. And I was like, man, George Perez does so much heavy lifting here. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he's such a great yeah, he's a uh, great man, great artist, and and uh, his work on Justice League, you know, which which really introduced him to DC, yeah. uh, was just superior. Yeah. Now, um, I noticed in the scene where all the Justice League members are teaming up for the final grudge match, you have a narration which says, "Their strength comes not in a single slogan, but in their very identity." Were you having a playful shot at Marvel and the Avengers there? Just a playful sort of shot across <laughs> the bow. <laughs> uh, maybe yeah. yeah why not i mean yeah, why not toss a, it out you know no avengers assemble you know <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, no. yeah but uh yeah i mean it, it, this was this was the original superhero team up book yes uh, and as i mean well world's finest was but uh this is everyone together though in one this is everyone place. together yeah now, I'm very happy. I, I love Justice League just as a concept. It always because I, I watched a lot of Super Friends as a little kid, so it got it got ingrained early. Um, was Justice League for you a dream come true, like a chance to play with all the big toys in the DC cabinet for you as a writer? Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, Justice League. I, my, my my love for that book goes back to uh, issue one or two. You know, I mean, I, right. wow. I started Way reading back. that book. You know, when I was a kid, which is uh, early sixties, am I right in saying? Is that like yeah, a, yeah, yeah? It came out, I think 60, 1960 wow. or so, fifty nine, sixty. Um, how, how much would it have cost? I, I asked Chuck these questions. If you're buying Just League one off the you know rack back then in the sixties, how much would it have cost? Do you reckon? Do you, do you remember? Like uh, it was a dime. A dime. Okay. Wow. A, ten cents. Ten, ten cents, cents for, man. Wow. For, for uh, uh, twenty-five pages of, uh, of superhero yeah, stuff, throw you know? ten cents it's... down. You know, we—I—I'm a big uh, I, I, like I—I I, I, obviously these times are way before me, so I, I think I always romanticise them. But uh, it does sound so cool. Um, now, um, when you got the title of Just League, did you envisage such a long run? And what made it different to the Batman and Superman titles, where? Looking at your Wikipedia, it looks like you did an issue, then had a break before the next one. Did Julie Schwartz tell you you had the ball and just run with it when you got Justice League? Like, did you know you were going to have a lengthy run? Well, actually, when when I first started doing JLA, there mm. was no consistent writer on the book. I mean, there had been writers who wrote it for like six or eight months. You know, right. uh, I think Steve Englehart had preceded me. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, but there were there were I I had actually done a couple of issues prior to taking it over gotcha. uh, uh, 
where I've been sort like of warm ups, here warm ups kind of thing for the main event. Yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. Well, I mean, it was more that I think Julie just was not convinced that anybody could write the book consistently. Sure. Okay. Um, so I, when I, when I started writing it, I was thinking, you know, I'll, I'll do this as long as he'll let me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and to, to an extent, those early uh, issues were like me, it felt like triad issues, you know, yeah. where I was like trying really hard to sell myself sure. as the guy who could write this book. Um, I think it wasn't until Julie left the book that I, I really felt like, okay, I'm going to be the permanent writer on this. Uh, so you did a great it, job. It, like, I, I don't know what it is with the delays from DC, but I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, they've only collected JLA up to issue 182 with the Bronze Age Omnibus 3. It's crazy yeah. to me how slowly they're collecting this and releasing it because there's generations of people like myself who it's it's really our first chance to read it. You know what I mean? Because we weren't around yeah. in the late seventies, early eighties, kind of thing to read. Well, there there's one. Uh, there, there's they they did the this omnibus of the marriage of of Gene uh, Loring, I think. Yes. Uh, yeah, and, and, and yeah. Adam, I think. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that that one, which kind of brings together a bunch of uh, the the bronze age stories mm. but yeah i'm surprised too i mean there, there seems to be it's a weird era because mm. i think dc feels a little weird about that era because uh, there's a bit of flailing <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of gold uh, though did. in there man like i mean i've got the three omnibuses yeah. out and i i gotta say readers i think today would do themselves a favor by leaping through. At first, you'd be like, wow, it's the 70s. You'd be like, actually, this is pretty cool. You know, like, mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of stuff there. Now, I want to focus in on um, something that, one of my favorite comics of all time, World's Finest 250. It's an epic 80-pager. Uh, it's it's from DC Comics, from the Bronze Age. It's cinematic in scope. Now, this is the one, Jerry, I, I'm hoping you remember it. Basically, Batman and Superman go back in time. The other Justice League members forget who they are. There's, like, World War Two stuff going on. Um, it's a movie to me in my head. Were you, you were working with George Tusker on this, I believe. Do you recall much about this story and writing it? I hate to say it. <laughs> oh, you don't? I really don't. <laughs> it's a, look, I, 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 I'll there point out period... to you. Yeah. There, there was a period there where I was, I was writing so much. Mm, uh, I bet every every week I was writing what amounted to one and a half comics, and I don't oh, think no. I, uh, I don't think I gave the the individual stories the attention that I I later gave to the Spider Man books that I was doing. Or well, you knocked this one out of the park, man. You know, like. I read this again before the show, and I love it. I, I honestly, when I'm when I'm reading it, I'm picturing like animated movie in it. Oh. It's it's fantastic. Now there's an issue. Um, you've got a, t- a kind of tasteful scene, Jerry, where Green Arrow and Black Canary are kind of in the afterglow after sex, and <laughs> and um, she says, "What's the past after all? But a memory everyone shares." And I thought, what a great line, Jerry. And I'm wondering. Thinking, did you come up with that one after a glass of cognac? Maybe a little puff of something. <laughs> <laughs> it's the seventies. I, I guess I was in my philosophical phase. <laughs> yeah, well, good for you, man. Like, um, it's great stuff. Now, I, I recommend that to to readers to check out Wells Finest Two Fifty. It's essentially a Justice League story. Um, now, I've got a question about Justice League Detroit. Um, what pushed you to go in that direction away from the classic seventies satellite group? Satellite group was it a sales decision? Um, and did you get the suggestion yeah. from above, or was it your own idea? I, there was a feeling 
rightly or wrongly, wrongly uh, that the book had become kind of stale. Right. Uh, really. And you know, we were we were in competition, in effect, with Teen Titans because Teen Titans was the other big group book that uh, sure. DC had, and it was they were casting a shadow, were they? Really, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was a great book, you know, yeah, and, yeah, and it, it, it had a unique voice and, uh, you know, it, it, it uh, much like X-Men at the time, you know, it, it dialed sure. into the audience, mm. uh, young, uh, young characters, uh, uh, you know, uh, young adult characters with emotional problems consistent from issue to issue. Um, and Justice League was not that. I mean, Justice League was a, uh, a, a mixture of characters who had their own books, you know, mm. their own stories in their own books. And DC was struggling at that point with the notion of continuity um, right. and how stories that uh, influenced the character in his own title or her own title mm. could be reflected in uh, a book where that character might appear uh, that, that, wouldn't wouldn't address it, you know. Gotcha. So if something happened in Superman, you yeah. know, where he's off in off in space with Supergirl, why is he doing this in Justice League? Is he League, available you know? in, a, in a Justice League story? Yeah, to so me, who that... cares? Is kind of my. I, I'm kind of well, like, yeah, does it matter really? Obviously, like... <laughs> but but it was a, it was a legitimate question at the time because yes. we hadn't figured that, figured that out, or mm. DC hadn't figured it out, mm. uh, and. At the same time, you know, there was this feeling, well, you know, Jerry has been writing this book for like six, seven years now, seven sure. or eight years, whatever it was. Uh, and, uh, you know, new people were coming in and sure. maybe we need a new approach. Uh, well, defensively, I was not going to like go yeah, silently into the night. No, you were like, this is my book. I'm going to kind of, go, you know, fight yeah. for it. Yeah. So I want to I want to figure out my own answer to this. And and. Uh, Working with Len Wein at the time, you know, mm. who was editor, um, mm. we came up with this notion, you know, well, why don't we, you know, find a way to write the Justice League, the main uh, core uh, of the Justice League out of the book and come up with a rationale for bringing in some new younger characters. Vibe uh, and, and, and Vixen, and make, all these kind of people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that was that was the notion. And mm. the execution of it, I think, lacked uh Lacked the intensity that the book needed. Um, brave move, the brave move, though, man. It, to, for you, that yeah. must have been you. Might, you guys must have sat down and had a really hard think about it before you did it, because it's a brave move. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, I mean there was definitely it was a big risk, and you know I, I pushed for it as much as for, for anybody else. Sure. Um, and uh, you know, as I say, the execution didn't didn't rise to the. the it did get an omnibus uh, recently in the last couple of years. An omnibus came out. I know the Detroit era, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Which and, and how did it sell? Do you remember? Like, did it did it address I the problem? No or? How it's, I, yeah. I have no idea. But I mean, the, the the impetus for that was that all of those characters that were uh, disparaged by the readers at the time yeah. have now you know, been embraced fully into the, uh, the, the CW's, you know, Arrowverse universe of, of, of uh, uh, TV. And, uh, well, that's good for you. The, I guess that, yeah, I guess the thought was, Oh, Hey, we can make some money, you yeah. know, uh, uh, publicizing the origins of these characters uh, to oh, the people yeah, who are watching saying. the yeah. TV show. 
Well, that that actually yeah. works out for you both ways because I assume a lot of these characters you at least co-created and then you're getting, they're on TV and then yeah. you're getting readers yeah. coming and buying the Detroit. Now, in the end, um, was it tough to walk away from Just League? Because it's got to be one of your longest runs. Did you get to do a farewell issue? And was it Crisis that finished it? Like they put an end to your run? Is is that around the time? Uh, no, Crisis that I think had occurred earlier. But, oh. Um, the, I didn't really, I, I sort of faded out. You Did know? you? And that was uh, during my, yeah. my general period. I was starting to have uh, uh, writer's block and issues. Oh, with, really? Uh, personal issues with, with DC. A bit of burnout as well, uh, maybe? Frust- yeah, uh-huh. burnout, general, a general sense of dissociation. Gotcha. Um, and yeah. I pretty much left DC. Right. Uh, you know, within about four or five months of leaving Justice League. Right, okay. So, fair enough. Um, that's interesting. And uh, unfortunately, it often is the way that uh, you guys sometimes don't get to choose the manner of your, your departure, yeah. you know. Now, I do yeah. want to touch I mean, was, on... Sorry, go ahead. All fine, you know. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it all went fine. But, yeah. you know... At the time, it was, it was a, challenging. Just a general stumbling out. <laughs> but no, I get you, man. And, like you, like, you did a hell of a lot of work at DC during that 70s, 80s period. Now... But before we leave this here, I do want to touch on Superman because I love that Bronze Age era with Galaxy Broadcasting and the TV newsroom. Now, I think I'm correct in saying that Julie Schwartz was still the editor and you were one of a very talented group of people, yourself, Elliot S. Magan, Kerry Bates and others. You still had Kurt Swan working, which must have been a joy yeah. to write for, man, for Superman. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the big thrills of my, my creative life was getting the opportunity to work with various of my my artistic heroes, you know, people like Gil Kane, mm. people like Kurt Swan, yeah. uh, you know, Joe, uh, uh, Jim Aparo. Oh, uh, yeah. Just, legends. Just terrific. They're all legends. Yeah. Like, to me, oh, yeah. it's funny, the later work of Kurt Swan is still a generation or so before me, but he's somehow still my Superman. You know what I mean? When I think of <laughs> Superman, I think of him because yeah. he was so iconic. And growing up as a little kid, it was the Kurt Swan Superman you saw advertised. You know, so I think mm-hmm. of him before I think of maybe much more recent people who've done, like, really great stuff with him. Now, one of my favourites, Jerry, is the t- when time ran backward, and I love this. It's it's one where Superman stops a space satellite from crashing, but then it rewinds back like an old-school videotape to him presenting the news <laughs> in the studio. Um, it's just awesome. Now, I have a question for you here. Um, Superman 307 or 309, there's a wild anti-pollution storyline, which we won't get into, which has Superman wanting to throw an oil tanker into orbit. So that's crazy enough. But it's the subplot, Jerry, that you gave I love. Supergirl reveals to Superman that Krypton didn't exist. It's all a delusion, including the bottle city (laughs) of Candor just being a model filled with dolls and Superman's a mutant. Did you get some <laughs> feedback from readers like, what the hell? Or like, because it's crazy, but fun. Well, I mean, it was, it, it, I didn't, I didn't get any personal feedback. You right. know, we, we didn't have uh, letters, uh, columns and Twitter, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and whatever email, whatever uh, letters Julie got, he didn't, uh, he didn't pass on. Right. Um, but, you know, it was, it was basically to have fun with the, the whole, uh, there was this trope, you know, in the in the '60s, uh, where Superman would would uh, people would mess with Superman's sense of reality. Yes, uh, yeah, that was a trope. So you know, getting yeah, again, I'm I'm a guy who goes back to the things that he loved as a kid. Sure, <laughs> that was one of the things that I loved. 
Well, it's a great story. Like, I read it recently preparing for this interview. I'm trying to sample some of your Superman stuff, and I'm like, this is absolute gold. Like, um, and it convinced me for a second. I was like, maybe Superman is a Kryptonian. (laughs) (laughs) Now, something we always talk about on Signal is I'm I'm a big Superboy and Crypto fan. Now, in this storyline, I was very pleased to see Crypto turned up with Supergirl. Now, you're writing in the era of the 70s and late 70s and early 80s Superman. Did Crypto Crypto ever get much of a run or was it a rare event? Like, what was the status of Crypto the Superdog during this time? Well, I mean, all of the 60s Superman uh, characters were, uh, or, or uh, supporting concepts, yeah. were in question right. in the 70s. Uh, when Julie took the book over, uh, there was a very deliberate uh, attempt by him and Denny O'Neill mm. to separate, you know, th- those two eras. Right. Um, you know, there was the whole the whole uh, reduction of Superman's super strength. You oh, know, that's right. The powers like got um, cut by a third or something like that. Or yeah, something. <laughs> something like that. But how do you? You know, infinite power cut yeah. by a third. What does that mean? I'm like, he's still uh, pretty powerful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's still it's still incredible. But the, so there was a sense of you know we're we're not gonna we're we're gonna try to step back from mm. those those tropes. Mm. Uh, and whenever they were used, they were used because a particular writer wanted to do it do that. Um, and some writers wanted to do it more, and some writers wanted to do it less. You know, that, yeah. that's pretty much how that, that works. It's a great era, with, though, with, man. With, that, that era that you guys are all working in, it really is a strong era of Superman. And I think DC are really sleeping on this era for their omnibuses and hardcovers. Like, there's a lot to enjoy in that Bronze Age period of the, oh, yeah. of the 70s, you know? Yeah, I think, I think you could really definitely you know, go back and explore that, explore that, you know, with reprints. I mean, I, I don't understand why DC doesn't reprint everything all the totally time, or at least totally. make it available digitally. Yes. Um, and that isn't know, available they, digitally on Comixology, that, that era, look, I mean, obviously some, uh, you know, issues are, but, but in general, most of it's not, which yeah. is weird because you'd think they'd be digitizing well, Superman and Batman straight away. I, I think that I, as I've said, you know, I think there's a sense uh, uh, not shame, you know, but but disconcert. Uh, 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 yeah. DC feels disconcerted about the Bronze Age. Yeah, you know, I don't it's, know why. It's like they, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think that you know because because a lot of the, the creators um, of current DC stuff grew up reading, you know, the 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 comics from the eighties in particular. Yeah. Yeah, um, you'd think that they'd they'd want to see more of that stuff celebrated. And a lot of these uh, writers but, are still around. They they might be older, but they're still I don't know. Yeah. They're still they're big names. Like I, th- I you know, think it's weird. part of it is that there, there's a, a, a tremendous inconsistency in the sure. '70s and '80s uh, yeah. DC output. Uh, there was a real lack of a of a corporate identity, and so you know in the six in the '50s and the '60s. You can look at those eras, and uh, you pick up, uh, you know, the, the 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 Justice League omnibuses or the Flash omnibuses, yeah. and they are consistent. You know, there, yes. there's a a, a a creative consistency that that you know is reflective. I personally would love to see the Ross Andrew era of Flash 
So oh, did I. I loved, oh, absolutely yeah, love to see that. I didn't even know he did that. Okay, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, after Carmine left the book in 68, Ross took it over right. for like two years. And you can't find that stuff anywhere. It's crazy. You know, the, 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 the first Superman uh, Flash race was a Ross Andrew drawn <laughs> issue. And don't I love those oh, races? Yeah. They're the best. They yeah, are the best. But man. the very first one was Ross Andrew drawn. And, and it, I have not seen it reprinted. Yeah. Um, but it's it's sort of weird. You know, there's like this sense of we're, we're going to memory hole an entire era or two of uh, various characters. P- partly, maybe, Jerry, it's that, I mean, I think what you're saying is right. There might, there's obviously some reluctance of some sort. They, they, they're, they're sort of glacial. They slowly, with Batman and Superman, are publishing, but they started from back in the Golden Age, and so they're kind of grinding their mm-hmm. way through. Where I'm sort of like, to me, and I don't mean to be a Philistine, but I'm sort of like, I think the Bronze Age to a modern reader is more accessible, actually, than a lot of the, like, earlier stuff, just only because audience tastes oh, yeah. have sort of changed, you know? Uh, well, I would love to see it. a Bronze... Uh, there's a, there's a, the whole run of... of uh, I mean, they are doing, you know, like the Ross Al Ghul era cool. uh, of Batman, but you, you've got all that great Frank, uh, Frank Robbins material, yeah. um, you know, the... Uh, even the, the the Ernie Chan Batman uh, yeah. art, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, there, there's a whole era that that could be brought forward. But it, as I say, it's the inconsistency. I mean, we're not running it, Jerry. The, That's the problem. I think we're not running it. Then we really probably should be. You know, <laughs> yeah. their, their reprint oh, section. Well. Eddie, I know. Oh well, but <laughs> I, I do want to ask well, you. Just this. do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, just say just do it. Just yeah. do it, DC. <laughs> Come on, just do it now. Um, Speaking of Superman, when you were doing it um, with all these different writers, was there an atmosphere of friendly rivalry amongst you guys pitching Superman stories? And how did it work in terms of, say, character continuity? And did Julie Schwartz just split you all up across the Superman titles? Because it seems like there's a lot of you guys and there was only a couple of titles. Yeah, there there was no real character continuity. Right. Uh, Julie didn't really understand that. As okay. a concept, I mean, he he got. He, I mean, I think he understood that it was a thing, sure. but he it didn't, didn't care matter about to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were all in there pitching uh, individual stories. Gotcha. That was the that was, uh, and I think you know there was a competition in the sense of you wanted us to get as many stories as you could. And that can be um, good. That, that a bit of competition yeah, like that can be yeah. very good for a book. Yeah. And I honestly think, and I got pointed to it. Um, I think I was listening to John Suntras on Word Balloon, and he talked about it so much. I think with you and others that I thought I want to check some of this stuff out. And I'm like, this is pretty good stuff, you know, like because um, mm-hmm. it kind of modernised Superman without making it, you know, putting him in the newsroom in Galaxy Broadcasting. I think it helped in that era, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the, the best thing about it was it didn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're 100 percent right. Yeah, it created it created the sense that that being a news being a newsman was still relevant. Yes. To, uh, to the character. Well, yeah, and I mean, um, this is back before the internet, so the the news, and even before like 24 news channels, so the idea of a new TV newsroom was a lot more kind of contemporary um it's accessible yeah accessible, i mean it, it yeah. made sense 
Yeah, it made sense to the readers that that Clark is a is a news uh, if he, a newsman meant this. You know, <laughs> that's what it meant. A- am I right in know? saying Lana Lang was a co-host as well? Um, you kind of brought Lana. I can't recall. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I think I'm right in saying that. But I used to love is his name Steve Lombardi. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's He's a lot of cool around, stuff. You know? yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff now. I do want to shift gears to the character. We've mentioned him, uh, shift gears to Punisher. Now, Jerry, I'm an enormous Punisher fan, and it's an absolute honour to have the man who created the character on the show. Look, for, for listeners, can you take us back to the creation of the character? What do you remember? Was there a light bulb moment? And who came up with the Skull logo? Um, okay, well, um, this was part of the Clone Saga. Uh, yes. We had... Um, I. I was going to use a character called the Jackal uh, as a as the main villain driving the uh, reintroduction of Gwen Stacy as a clone, mm-hmm. and in uh, and since he was going to be coming into the book, uh, you know, fresh, uh, I I wanted to build him up and to build him up. One way to build him up would be to have a uh, a cool henchman, yes, uh, who he organizes into, you know attacking spider-man uh so initially that was the that was the impetus and i was thinking of a character who i just was calling like the assassin you know or gotcha. something like that which just is a cool name as some, well that's a cool name yeah, too. Just yeah. some, some some name you know that just because he wasn't going to be a big deal he was just going to be like a, a one-shot yep. uh, character and i drew this little uh costume for him um you know, like an all black jumpsuit with a, a small skull on the chest. Uh-huh. And I gave that to uh, John Romita uh-huh. to develop into, uh, you know, a, a, a costume for the character. Uh-huh. And John did the sketch, the famous sketch, you know, of the Punisher skull. He took the little skull and he expanded it out. Uh, uh, awesome. And that became, you know, this iconic look. And now, now, when you have that costume, you say to yourself, boy, this is a cool looking character. Yeah. We should really do something more with him than just be a one, one shot, one throw. And so the name, the assassin no longer seemed cool enough uh. for this character. Uh. So, uh, according to Len Wein, uh, he and I then went up to, uh, to Stan's office cause uh-huh. we couldn't come up with the name sure. uh, and asked Stan, what should we call this character? You know, uh, he says, well, what does he do? And uh. Uh, we said, well, he, he punishes criminals uh, who are bad guys. And he says, well, there you go. He's the Punisher. Well, wow, so St- Stan was the one who actually named him. Oh, that's actually pretty cool he from Stan. Yeah. yeah. Well, Stan was really great at that, that one, you know, at that simple naming. Yeah. He was brilliant you know, when it comes to that. Uh, the same thing with, um, yeah. you know, naming Peter Parker. You know, he was just, he was just good with, with names. It seems yeah. like really good. Yeah. So what was the so, like? What was the fan because that that original issue, man? When you've got him smashing the wall, and he's like, um, <laughs> "Maybe when I'm dead, it'll mean something." But right now, I'm just a warrior fighting a lonely war. I'm like, "Yeah, this is this is Punisher, like issue one, and he's going off." Like, what was the fan reaction when you when you put him out there? Did you get a lot of letters coming in, you know, to the Marvel offices, or was it more gradual? Well, we we knew right from the beginning, from that first issue, that we had a cool cool villain that we wanted to bring back mm. uh because the the the, the aspect of what makes a, a villain great isn't just you know uh that he's got a good name or or sure. a uh, cool looking costume it's that 
there's something about his personality that uh, that makes you want to uh, explore it more. Anger and was his, his big thing in that first anger, issue. He was angry guy, anger, you know? and his self justification. Oh, big time! Yeah, you know, most most villains, you know, are. Uh, I mean, at Marvel, uh, uh, the, the whole goal was to to have villains who had more than one aspect to their personality right uh you know the 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 worst villains were the ones who basically wanted to rule the world or, sure dr uh, doom those know, kind of guys yeah, yeah but but what made doom interesting was the uh, the vulnerability behind that yes you know yeah. the the fact that he did care for the people of the country that he ruled even though he ruled them With as a fist. tyrant uh, <laughs> yeah. you know he's he he still thought of himself, you know, as a, as a guy who was trying to defend his country. He did. Um, yes, he did. And he had that, that you know, scarred face under the, the yeah, mask, no. you know. Never got, uh, never got plastic that. surgery. Probably should have explored right, that option. Right. <laughs> so, w- with The Punisher, we had a character that we knew was going to uh, be interesting to do. Mm. Uh, and we were all pl- already planning his, his return, you know, mm. another few issues even before we had fan reaction and the fan reaction was great. And the, yeah. and whenever you put him on the cover, his, the book sold. <laughs> well, he's like uh, everything else, like in the pages, he's cool as hell, but I think visually he's just so cool. I know as a kid and I didn't know, you know, I walked into my comic store. I didn't know punish from bar of soap. It, the image grabbed me. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Now that skull, that skull just grabs. It's you, massive. Right? Like it's, John Romita yeah. uh, Senior uh, really had a big impact then in, in in taking the skull and blowing it up because that's so oh, big God, a part. Yeah. 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 Um, now I mean, the I brilliance read, of that of, of the design is is right there. It yeah. is. Yeah. I read on the internet um, now, and uh, I don't know where I read it, but you were talking about the changes in Punisher's depiction through the decades. Do you remember this? It was something about him reflecting the different anxieties of each decade. I was just wondering if mm-hmm. you could get a listen as the ten cent pitch because I thought it was very intelligent stuff you were saying. Well, I mean, the the, the notion is that he's a bit of a Rorschach mm-hmm. test for the errors that he uh, that he comes uh, comes into prominence. Yeah, and uh, the different writers and artists will interpret him according to the time in which he's being written. Gotcha. Um, you know, like uh, in the seventies, he was a kind of a, a, a dark, dirty, hairy type. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. In the in Death the eighties, kind of guy. A, yeah, yeah. In the eighties, he's kind of a triumphant uh, Schwarzenegger action hero. Uh-huh. Um, you know, by the late nineties, uh, Garth Ennis, you know, was mm. turning him into a bleak, very bleak, uh, soul searching. Emblem of of, of uh, uh, retribution. The, the, yeah, yeah. The 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 idea of, of the, the, the damage, you know, the yes. emotional damage that can be done to, to a character who pursues revenge. Mm. Uh, and then you know, into the aughts, and uh, and currently, unfortunately, so. he's become a symbol of. Uh, uh, nationalism and racism. Uh, yeah, which, and that, and that is sad. I, I, that is actually very which sad. Is very sad. Yeah, that's very and that's sad. that sucks to be honest. Um, but yeah. no, I think I, I honestly like honestly I think that that is such a good summary of something, and it's it's Punisher Frank Castle. It's it's really interesting that you said that because I'm like, man, I never thought of that, but it is true. He shifts, and I think at this first mm-hmm. you don't think there's much of a shift, but it's also how he's being interpreted now. 
I wanted to yeah. mention, I looked in at your graphic novel, which I really like, Punisher Bloodlines, where you did, I think Dave Cockerman did beautiful artwork on yes. this. Now, yeah. that one has scenes with a much more well-adjusted Frank Castle than I've seen elsewhere, and I noticed that even though it's written, I believe, in 91, you said it only six months after the death of his family, there's no microchip, etc. Was that a very conscious decision to do it so close, you know? Yeah, well, I... I, I, again, I always feel like a character is most relevant close to his origin, you know, that, that sure. you ask yourself, you know, what makes this character tick? Um, or why is this character relevant? And, and it's usually because of his origin, you know, oh, yeah, or yeah. The, 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 the zeitgeist moment, you know, that, that, that he uh, embodies, at least for me. Well, yeah, I mean, Frank Castle can never get away from the yeah. killing in Central Park. Like, that is the so, core of the Punisher, you know? Right. And the closer that that is in time to uh, his current uh, experiences, the more uh, open that wound is. Mm. You know, and yeah. the, the more open that wound is, the more rational his response to it is. You know, it's like, when I say rational, it's, it's, uh, if you if you if your if your family was murdered six months ago, uh, you are still in your rage state. You are 100%. still in your trauma. Open state. wound, raw uh, as possible. Right. You know? If if it happened ten years ago, you are now a psychotic. Sure. You know. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's hope of redemption. There's hope of yeah. recognition uh, of, of that you may be going too far. Yeah. Um, that's still a possibility. I love um, I love Dave Cockerman's artwork on that too. I think it really sings, yeah. and you, you guys worked like beautifully together. Now I know writers like Chuck Dixon and Garth Ennis did this very successfully later on, but as the creator of Punisher, did you ever want to take Frank back to the Nam yourself, like back to the jungle? Was that ever a storyline that you sort of thought we could do? You know. Well, I mean, it, it, I, I had never any interest in it, but you mm. know, I could see it as a as a. Uh, as a uh, a way to go, you know, yeah, yeah. for sure. I was also um, thinking in the seventies. <clears throat> obviously, I mean, I, I don't have the date on top of my head, but let's say it's mid seventies that he was created. That's not lo- that long after, like Watergate. What about storylines like going after some politicians, corrupt politicians <laughs> that got plea deals? I mean, would this have been something you could have pitched to Marvel back then, or was it still a bit like oh, that's a bit too hot to touch? No, I think actually Marvel was very open to political. Uh, 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 commentary in the in the seventies. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at that stuff now and you go, "Wow!" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, I agree. Some of the stuff is the out 60s, there. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I, I think you know our our orientation, our concept of the character was so clearly, uh, you know, this this uh, crime uh, yes. oriented uh, mythology that that it would not have. It would not have been inappropriate, but you know, it wasn't something that would have come up. Sure, uh, he was created in '73, so that was right around, yeah, right around Watergate, in the middle yeah. of Watergate, and he sort of reflected this kind of general uh, uh, despair, cynicism, uh, despair, disenfranchisement. Cynicism, whatever, yeah, yeah. Uh, I love you it. Know, this, the notion that uh, government can't help you. Yeah. Um, you know, there is no justice, you know, that's sort of... <laughs> Just <you know>. punishment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, now, Ronald Acosta, one of our listeners, um, asked, what did you think of the Punisher TV show with John Berthenol? Uh And back when you created the character, was there an actor that you sort of visualised as a good fit? Uh, I, can't, I can't say that there was any 
actor per se. I mean, mm. you know, you had a lot of really tough, uh, tough guy actors at that. What about period, Charles, you know, Bronson? So, Charles Bronson? Charles Bronson. Yeah, Charles Bronson. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that the, to some degree, maybe that influenced John Ramita's sure, sure. You know, interpretation of the, the character. Uh, but Bronson wasn't much of an actor, you know, no. to me. So I wouldn't. Yeah, have, that's true. Actually, I wouldn't yeah. have thought. I, I like him, but you are right. He's a bit of a block yeah, of wood. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, uh, I, I think Berenthal did a fantastic oh, job, you know, yeah. and, and I, I, you know, there are always rumors that maybe it'll, maybe they'll do something else with it now uh, that it's on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Uh, I was yeah. surprised that it's on Disney+, Plus, to be honest. Uh, Surprised but, but happy to see, man, because oh, you, you know what? Like, yeah. thank God it's on Disney+, Plus because I actually think he did a remarkable job. You know, oh, like, absolutely. he's such a good actor. He was. Have you ever seen Wolf of Wall Street? He's really good in that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, he, he, he has such range. Yeah. And he's usually, because of his looks, you know, uh, like a lot of actors, you know, he he uh, has been pigeonholed in a certain kind of ca- characterizations. Because sure. he has that kind of dark, intense, yeah, yeah. Uh, blue-collar-y kind of tough guy look. It's perfect for Frank um, Castle, though. You know, but, yeah, but uh, you know, you see him in uh, uh, Baby Rider. Uh, yes, uh, yes, it, 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 he's so good in that. He's you know? very good in I mean, that. I just, agree. He's just good in everything. He's know? good in Walking he's, Dead he's as good. Shane in the first two seasons. Yeah. Um, now yeah. we've got a couple of um, these are a little bit hot, and you've got to remember some of these Punisher fans have come in direct from Iraq, <laughs> the war zone, <laughs> and they lob in. So um, first one is Michael Kellishim um, has a question, <clears throat> and I'll quote him. This is this is his question, uh, Jerry. The Punisher is extremely popular with the military conservatives and a certain Australian podcaster. That's me. The far left hate Frank Castle and desperately want him cancelled or watered down. As the creator, it seems you are not comfortable with the Punisher's fan base. Are you truly sorry for making this character, or, or are you merely regretful that he's beloved by characters you don't like? It's a hot question, Jerry. I mean, oh, what do you I'm, think? I'm not. Yeah, I'm not regretful uh, of, of creating the character. I'm 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 sorry that he's been embra- embraced by a uh, white nationalist racist. So group. Am I. fuck you know, uh, screw that. But, I was going to swear there, but know, I'm like, fuck that, man. You know, like really. Yeah, you know? I don't. I don't think. And and I also I, I don't agree that uh, I don't agree with uh, political uh, uh, people on the left. You know who. Sure just feel like the character should be uh, eliminated entirely. I no. mean, that to me just seems like a, an overreaction to, uh, and, and a misunderstanding of the usefulness. Where are these guys on every other vigilante character of all time? Like, it's not yeah. like Punish is the well, only he, guys ever picked up a gun, you know? <laughs> look, Robin Hood, Robin Hood was yeah. designed to, to uh, speak truth to power yes. in, a, in a sense. True, it's true, man. Uh, yeah, wow, know, big call, but right, yeah. You know, mythology, uh, the mythology of the vigilante is that it speaks to something about what what uh, what we feel about authority in our mm. lives. Mm. Um, and uh, the Punisher as a as a vigilante, you know, has it has a use. And the question is, just what use does you, you want to make of that? And that's why I say it's a Rorschach test. Mm. Uh, I could see a version of the Punisher, you know, I mean, a, a version of Frank Castle, who's a black vet, mm. uh, uh, taking out white 
nationalists. I could 100% so, see that. I could see know. Frank Castle doing that right now. Like, he doesn't what? need to be black to do that. Right. He, could, he could go... Well, Frank doesn't know, hold truck be, with... But uh, it would be, wonderf- you know. be wonderfully ironic, you know? And yes. You can always do whatever you need to do to, to, to make the character speak for whatever... Frank Castle has killed for. a lot of crazy, like, you know... I, I hesitate to even use far right, but just... Just crazy groups in his time. Frank Castle has put mm-hmm. a lot of those guys in the ground. You know what I mean? He doesn't. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, um, yeah. if Marvel, I mean, uh, sorry, go the, ahead. The bigger question, I think, the bigger question is is, uh, and this is one where I'll come down on the side of yes. Sure. Is there a place for a murderous vigilante anti-hero? Yes. <laughs> hell yeah! I'd be like, hell yeah, there is. Yeah. Is, then the question is, how do you use that? That's a different question. Hundred um, percent. And it comes down uh, to the writer yeah. and the and the mm-hmm. whole approach. Like every, like I think Punish is one of those characters that he is what he is, but it's almost like I've heard him described as a walking plot device. Like it's sort of what you do with that character, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. on the yep. that's on the writer, that's on the editor, that's on you know the artist. Like because he's not. Yeah, like yeah, like I said, I'm 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 confident he's come. He's he's I'm confident if we went through Punisher's back history, he's killed white nationalists at some point. You know, yeah, I'm confident absolutely. he's done that. Now, um, I, I wanted to ask you this question: um, what if, what do you if they offered you the book tomorrow? If they offered you Punisher tomorrow, would you take it? You know, if they said to you, Jerry, you yeah. want to write a miniseries? Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I I don't write any. I, I I'm I'm not you know I'm semi retired, so yeah. I don't want to do a, uh, sure. a title anymore but yeah i would absolutely take him um yeah. and i would i would address those that whole issue yeah very forcefully i would love to know, see it i, I reckon they should throw you a one shot i mean i know you're semi-retired but <laughs> you're the creator of punisher like well, throw jerry a, a 30 pager they have their own approach you know they and uh, it, it is what it is so you know exactly so yeah. I, I i just hope that uh, they do something with him and on Disney Plus, you know, that yeah. uh, continues the story that uh, John Barenthal and the creators of that show, Me you too. know, were... Uh, well, they're rebooting so. Daredevil, so that with the same guy, um, Charlie mm-hmm. Cox, and who knows, you, you know, Punisher John Berthold is a big name. It wouldn't surprise me if, if he got a run at some point. Um, yeah. You know, uh, now, uh, final question on Punisher... Uh, Ronald Costa asks, the Punisher skull logo is one of the most popular and visible comic-related logos in America, uh, far more than Batman and Superman. That's questionable. Anyway, from T-shirts, hats, and car decals, that skull is everywhere. Do you get royalties off those, or does Disney pocket at all? <laughs> Do you get a royalty off the merchandising? No. No, no I, I, oh, that I sucks. don't. I mean, I, 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 uh, the, the, there's some compensation for toys, right? Uh, but that's about it. Wowee, that sucks. It, before we go though, like uh, off Punisher, like with the tr- with the hardcover, like I've got all the um, all the you know hardcover collections of Punisher, pretty much. Do you get a piece? Like, and I'm sorry to ask you, you don't have to answer this question. Do you get a piece of every Punisher comic ever? Do you know what I mean? Like Garth Ennis's Punisher, no. do you, you don't get a piece of that. You only get a piece no, of the ones I, you I, wrote. I, I get royalties on uh, on scripts that i've written gotcha uh, sorry that was just a question of my general interest um it's a yeah. shame though i i really i mean we've already brought it up but i i really do think there's aspects of it where i i do think the creator should be getting something it doesn't and not necessarily a ton but out of these big collections if it's a character you create like punisher 
I'm sort of like, how come some of that isn't flowing well, back to the creator? You know, I, I, I would agree with you, but you know, mm. it's not, not for me to say, I mean, again, at DC, there's, uh, mm. there is a, I think a creator royalty, right. uh, a minor creator royalty for, for, uh, some use of character. Well, but when you retired, it all adds up that. too. You know what I mean? Like when you're retired, like a little yeah, revenue yeah. stream can be very I, helpful. You know? Yeah, it's it's no biggie. I no, mean, I, cool. I look at it it's as cool. the the larger issue is the whole idea of corporate ownership of IP, and mm. uh, that's that's something that I think you know should have been addressed. Oh yeah, decades ago. Um, but you know, well, we I think the, a lot of that was that we have. Yeah, and don't you feel a lot of that is at the inception of comic books? What It's how the comic book creators have been so screwed as compared to some people who write novels who do get pieces of stuff that they got turned well, into. A, there's know. a difference. Yeah, I mean, th- this goes back, I think, to the to the early era of uh, uh, pulp magazines mm. and um, uh, the, the, the idea of the, the author shop. Yes. Um, and... And also to uh, the, the the beginnings of film, yeah. um, where there were authors who uh, would hire other writers to write stories for them, yeah. and publish them under their name. So that began. I mean, uh, the the, the fam- most famous one, you know, is, is uh, uh, Alexander Dumas. You know, had a had a oh yeah shop, Three Musketeers uh, and stuff like that. That's him, isn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, but he had he had writers working for him, you know. So that was, that was oh like a, yeah, wow. Well, so yeah. way back then, he was uh, smart enough to farm it out, kind of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. But there were two. I mean, there were two different approaches. I mean, there was the Charles Dickens approach, you know, uh-huh. where he was his own uh, author, and you know, he, he would publish other authors, and they own their work. And there was the uh, the French uh, novelist approach, which was author shops farm it out uh, and, and want pay people when, to, when, to produce it, but he pockets the royalties under your name. Yeah. 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 And then in, in, uh, the, the late nineties, you know, when you start the 1890s, mm. you started having penny, uh, penny dreadfuls and mm-hmm. uh, dime novels. Mm. You had authors who were house names for mm. publishers and the publisher owned the author as in effect, the house name, which is very similar to stories. what comics are, you know? Right. Mm. And that's what led to the idea of, uh, work for hire. Yes. Which in turn, you know, is the whole concept behind uh, why characters that are created by uh, uh, artists and writers, you know, are considered to be the uh, be authored mm. by the companies that employed them. Um, that's a that's a a very weird concept that it only exists legally. Yes, <laughs> and 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 reality. there's a reason the corporates love it. They're like, this is fantastic, oh, you know. Yeah. Like this IP is great. Is their, yeah, yeah. yeah. They I mean, can milk IP it and milk is, it and milk is... it for decades upon decades. Yeah, you know? yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But it has nothing to do. It has nothing to do with the actual creation of the material, no. and uh, it's it, it creates this weird dichotomy where mm. you have people like uh, uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby mm. are the acknowledged creators of characters that are authored by Marvel Comics. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just weird. You know, and, and, yeah. and then, you know, you have uh, credits on, on TV shows uh, where, uh, uh, or, or movies where 
for whatever reason, a, an actual creator is uh, given the, the credit of creating a character mm. for DC Comics. Yes, I you can know, see so the, that, yeah. The, it says created by so-and-so for DC Comics. Yeah, it'll often say uh, based on characters created by Jerry Conway for Marvel yeah. or something like that, you know? Yeah, mm. because then, then it transfers the actual uh, uh, authorship to the corporation, but the corporation has literally nothing to do with the creation other than saying, we would like this to be done. Well, you've got an ally, you've got an ally, <laughs> you've got an ally in Signal of Doom because it's one of my pet things, but I really do feel, I mean, I, I hope in my lifetime there is some significant changes and maybe some legal losses need to happen. I know what they like to do is settle on the courtroom steps if it gets close to an adverse yeah, judgment. It'll never happen. You know, no. there's too much... I mean, the, the, the power imbalance is just too far yeah, in yeah. the corporate uh, interest. The best thing that's happened is uh, the development of independent comics yes. and uh, yes. the, abil the ability of, of writers and artists to create and maintain control of their own material. 100% That's why there's been, yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, there's been no new creations in comics in 40 years. No, I agree. There's been very Since little... Since the 80s. Like it's, it's like that Walking yeah. Dead guy, Robert Kirkman. Look at the fortune he's made with his, with his yeah. uh, you know, stuff. Like he's, he's showing everyone, like, look at, look at this. You know, I did this I mean, in I image. I don't understand why... I, 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 I do not understand why uh, Michael Bendis created Naomi yeah. for DC. I, I don't understand. He has his own ability yep. to create characters uh you know under his own imprint the bendis why brand man it's the bendis DC brand like you know Naomi, like, okay. I have no, I, it's an uh, why why would you do that but I, he, I he wanted to do it for whatever reason he he chose to do that yeah. but he chose to do that yeah well uh, I people mean, like me we didn't really have an opportunity yeah i i don't want to even like get into his motivations but yeah it is interesting now i did want to um i tracked down uh jerry one of my favorite movies from the seventies, Logan's Run. You did the I tracked down the comic book adaptation, uh, and you did the fir first issue of what I think was an ongoing Logan's Run comic, and it covers like the first sort of act of the movie. Um, did you like Logan's Run back in the day, or was this just another gig? Because I always thought it was a brilliant movie for the seventies. Oh, uh, I I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, that's, um, that's tough, man. I, I such a nihilistic storyline though as well like they die at was, 30 you know it was kind of it was kind of a, a uh, uh, you know the, typical of that dystopian feeling of the of the early 70s uh, to the mid 70s and and uh, I mean it spoke to something you know about, yeah. about the, the the youth youth movement of the time yes uh, yes you know, you'd had this uh, uh, dystopian uh, science fiction movie in the late '60s. Uh, I think it was called Wild in the Streets. You know about a uh, uh, a, a president. You know a, 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 a president elected at 21 or something like that. You know yeah. and the youth were going to take over and throw <laughs> the old people into into camps and uh, all wow. this kind of stuff. The terror of the youth. You know. Yeah. Um, they were afraid of the boomers. <laughs> yeah, they sure were. Now, uh, look, we're getting towards the end, but I just want to, I'd be a crime if I didn't ask you this. So 
Richard mentioned this. Um, you worked on quite a few TV shows as writer and producer. And I'm going to list some names here. Diagnosis, Murder, Matlock, Jake and the Fat Man, Hercules and Law and Order, to name just a few. Now, Jerry, can I just say in my house growing up, we watched a lot of Matlock and Jake and the Fat Man was one of my personal favourite shows. <laughs> um, so I am very familiar with Jake and the Fat Man. Um, now, you obviously moved into into TV very successfully. Um Richard asks, I've got two questions, they're both right. Firstly, Richard asks, how did you find the transition from comics to TV and how did you get your foot in the door? But more importantly, what lessons did you bring? And Corey asks, is, from writing comics to your work on TV and vice versa? Like, could you sum it up well, for us? I, sure. Um, I, had, I had been writing movies with Roy Thomas uh, in the 80s, early, okay. early mid-80s. Um, and during the course of that, I had met a guy named uh, Dean Hargrove. Uh-huh. Uh, after after Roy and I uh, broke up as our writing partnership, and I, I was having a major writer's block, uh, crisis really? of confidence, wow. all of this, yeah. which led to me leaving DC and you know generally yeah. going down a down a dark hole. Uh, I climbed out of it on the advice of a friend. Uh-huh. Uh, who uh, told me, look, why don't you just go talk to all the people that you know uh, in, in film and television yeah. and ask for their advice of what to do next. Uh-huh. And one of the people I knew was Dean Hargrove. And uh, I called him up. Uh, he invited me in. Uh, and he said, uh, well, what I'd like you to do is to write, uh, do a rewrite of a script for us. Mm. And I was like, Excellent. oh, well, I had just come here for advice, but, you know, yeah, I'll do it. So sure, this, is, this is work. I'll take uh, it. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> and I did it. And uh, he, he then hired me to write some scripts for the for Father Dally Mysteries. Mm-hmm. And then that turned into a full-time gig. And uh, it went from there. Uh, so. I, How much work I did you do on Jake working... and the Fat Man? How much work did you do on Jake and the Fat I, Man? Was it a lot? I did, I think, two or three scripts. I'm not sure. Uh, that was after Dowling got canceled. Uh, right. Dean had uh, set up uh, uh, having me write like uh, four or five scripts for the shows that he was uh, producing at the time. Sure. Matlock and Jake and the Fat Man. Right. Uh, with the idea that it would keep me around so that if, if they got another show off the ground, I would be available to write full time for that. Yeah, um, so that was William was Conrad's man. last show, wasn't it? William Conrad was the fat man, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah. What yeah. A he was voice. he was very, very old and sure. not yeah. very well. He, did, he didn't <laughs> exactly. look well in that show. I mean, I love William Conrad and his yeah. voice. He voiced. Um, I'm sure you've you've heard it, the Gunsmoke um, oh, yeah. radio. Yeah. I mean, I love that. I listened to that. I listened to that in bed to go to sleep. It's just such a beautiful voice. <laughs> um, so he wasn't yeah. well. He was he, terrific. Yeah, and no. But they, he did five did seasons, didn't Yeah, yeah. But but he would basically, when he came in uh, for a scene, mm. um, wherever he sat down, <laughs> that was where he was going to stay for the rest of the scene. Right. So they would move the scenery behind him. Wow. <laughs> well, God bless him, because like angles. it's in his later years, you know, and he, he's on a mainline show. Guys like me, you know, back in the 90s, we had no idea who William Conrad was, but we loved that show. You know, I had Joe Penny as well, who was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it was a fun show. You know, it was a, 
it was an old fashioned fun, uh, fun show that that was what Dean did was these uh, great shows that that sort of uh, spoke back, spoke back to the late 60s, uh, you know, the, the certain kind of yeah. uh, Rockford Files, uh, you know, that it's not a million miles yeah. away from that kind of stuff. Rockford Files, one yeah, of my favorite all time yes. shows, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that was fun. You know, I mean, it was, I, I, I enjoyed the two or three episodes that I, I sure. for the show. That's a separate uh, podcast where Dave hosts the Jake and the Fat Man uh, podcast. Now, yeah. just as we're wrapping up, I do want to mention my girlfriend is a massive Law and Order fan, and I know you wrote yeah. for Law and Order Criminal Intent. Um, that's a very look. I watch a lot of SVU, and I did watch uh, Criminal Intent too. Fantastic show, so tightly plotted. Um, yeah. That's a high caliber show, Jerry. Was that a pleasure to work on? It was. Uh, I got to work with some really, uh, I mean, it, it was a great writing staff. Yeah. So, and while we didn't collaborate directly with each other, they were great guys to hang out with uh, sure. and women. Um, and my boss on the show, Rene uh, Balser, mm. uh, is one of the smartest uh, story uh, uh, plotters, you know, that mm. I've, I've worked with. So uh, I really enjoyed working on that show. I, I, mean, I think the and, plots. And God, you know, yeah. working working with Vince D'Onofrio as yes. an actor, yeah. you know, t- t- uh, performing the scripts that you've collaborated on. I mean, it's it's terrific. I think he's one of the best out there, like, honestly, uh, oh, and, yeah. and has been for a long time. Um, yeah, and they rip stories. I know SVU rip stories straight from the headlines as well. They're very fond of that, and they do it well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Was that a big part of it? Did you often look through the paper yeah. or the internet yeah. and go, yeah, we've we got a story a, we here? Had a, uh, uh, Renee had a, uh, a clippings book that was this gigantic uh, 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 ring binder mm. full of full of clippings of, of news articles, you know, that we yeah. would flip through to see if there was anything in there. And then all of us huh. were ourselves kind of weird news junkies. I was going to say, so that would help. Yeah. Our, our own... Uh, 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 stories that you know we'd we'd pick up on and pitch. It's part of the fun uh, of Law and Order to go. Oh man, like this is story. Like it's it's so sort yeah. of of the moment. Like it's great. Yeah. Now, Jerry, I do want to say thank you so much for your time. Um, it, look, I do. Before we leave you, have you got anything that you're that you're working on now or come out recently that you'd like to promote or push people towards? Because um, we're certainly happy to well, do it on Signal always, for you. Always reprints of my stuff coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a. There's some epic collections coming out uh, of my work at Marvel and uh, DC has got omnibuses, you know, uh, <laughs> going yeah. after the kazoo. Uh, <laughs> so please feel free to pick up the old stuff. Yeah, for um, sure, for sure, man. Like, um, yeah. and I, I do want to say, Jerry, you've been an absolute superstar. Thank you for answering all my questions. I know there've been a lot of them. Um, you're always welcome on Signal of Doom. You are the co-creator of Punish, for God's sake, and I'm almost, I'm almost letting <laughs> off a military salute for you at this point. Um, so thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you, and I hope uh, you have a great day down there in uh, Sydney. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. <laughs>